one of the things that is most despised in our society is waiting. The vast majority of us do not want to wait. We want things to happen quickly and as quickly as possible. And even worse than waiting, I think, is unexpected waiting. And unexpected waiting that is lengthy. So you go to the doc doctor's office, assuming it may be a little while, but it's a very long time. Or you find yourself on the rare occasion the tea is delayed. <laughs> You find yourself on a platform or at the bus stop waiting a very long time. Perhaps you've experienced the unexpected, lengthy waiting of a delay of a flight. You're landing, expecting about an hour for your connection. You thought it's going to be getting close to make it from this flight to that, and then you find out there's a delay of 10 hours. Initially, chaos breaks out as everyone is angry, but then you face the question, what will we do while we wait? And some people seem relatively unfazed by it. One pulls out a book that they have been reading, eager to pick up where they left off. Another pulls out a knitting project they've been working on that can make progress, and another pulls out some work and they can get some work done. The wise parent pulls out activities they are prepared for the waiting. While others seem to wonder, what can I possibly do for 10 hours? How can I occupy myself? Had I known that I might need to wait 10 hours, I would have been prepared, but I'm unprepared to wait. In the life of the Christian, we will find ourselves often waiting. And so we wonder, how are we supposed to wait? What should we do while we wait? That's what we'll see in our passage this morning. So we have a Bible, turn to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, we'll pick it up on verse 1, and the Bible's near you. You can find it on page 830. Page 830. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible, open up a Bible app so you can see the passage in front of you. You can follow along as you work our way through it. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers, or chapter 25. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers. We'll begin with verse 1, we'll work our way through verse 30 today. And if you don't know the copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. The back of the room is a table, stack your Bibles there, it says free Bibles. Please grab one of those, follow the service, and take it with you as our gift to you this morning. So we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in these last days just before Jesus will be crucified gathered with his disciples, instructing them privately on the Mount of Olives. Pick it up, Matthew 25, beginning in verse 1. This is Jesus speaking. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. For the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. The wise took flasks of oil with their as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. The wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. 
go to buy, bridegroom came. The servant ready went in with him to the marriage feast. The door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Surely I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. It will be like a man going on a journey. He called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. He who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of these servants came and settled the council with them. He who received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. Master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also had the two talents. Saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. His master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. At my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, give it to him who has ten talents. But to everyone who has, the more be given. He will have an abundance. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken. Cast a worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In our passage today, we'll see this emphasis. Be persevering and faithful while you wait for the return of Jesus Christ. Be persevering and faithful while you wait for the return of Jesus Christ. We'll see two parts of our text. First, we'll see watch perseveringly. And then second, work faithfully. Watch perseveringly, work faithfully. So first we see watch perseveringly in verses 1 through 13. In our passage today, we see these two parables. And we want to remind ourselves, how are we to think about trying to understand a parable? Because there can be an easy temptation for us to fall into where we basically take a parable and can make it say almost whatever we want it to say. So this element of the story, we say, well, it means this and this and this. And so sometimes we just want to say, well, how are we to determine what a parable is, a parable is intended to say? Always a key aspect of understanding the parable is to pay very close attention to the context. Where do we find this parable in the Bible? What is said just before it and just after it will guard us and help us and inform us as we think about the meaning of a parable. 
And typically, parables are, are not trying to instruct us on numerous topics, but main, normally there's one main thrust that Jesus is trying to provoke his disciples on. So Jesus wants to make a point, a primary point, and he wants to stir up or to exhort or to correct those who are listening with a parable. So therefore, the context of our parable is very important in order for us to understand it clearly. So our passage is a continuation that was started all the way back at the beginning of chapter 24. We saw a few weeks ago. And in 24.3, we saw that Jesus had gathered with his disciples privately. So he's on the Mount of Olives with these who are his devoted followers. So all these who Jesus is teaching are those who are professing at this time to be seeking to follow Jesus. So Jesus often did speak to outsiders, but that's not the audience here. These are committed, outwardly committed followers of Jesus that Jesus is speaking to. And they had asked Jesus, understanding that, that he would uh, return one day, what will that look like? When will Jesus return? And it told us in chapter 24, verses 4 through 28, that between his life, death, his resurrection, his ascension, there will be time between his ascension and his return. They told us that there would be these birth pains that would mark the world during this time. That there would be wars and rumors of wars. There would be earthquakes and famines. There would be false teachers who would come and try to lead people astray. The followers of Jesus, he told us we would face opposition and persecution. And throughout this time, the gospel would be proclaimed more and more until the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. Jesus told them and us, this is where we are now. So this is the moment where we live today in this in-between, between Jesus' ascension and his promised return. And we saw last week that Jesus also said that no one knows exactly when he will return except for the Father. He was very forceful to say no one knows, and therefore there's no reason for us to focus on or try to discern when he's returning. Simply know that he is returning. We don't know and we can't know. But he also told us, as we saw last week, that his return is near. That he's coming soon that we're in this last season before his return. And he told us, as we saw last week, that his return, when he comes, it will be sudden, and it will also be unexpected. So Jesus had urged them, his disciples, to be ready. At the end of our passage, we saw verse 46, that he was urging them in this in-between time to be faithful and wise servants. And that then leads us into our passage today. So Jesus is teaching his disciples, not outsiders, but those who profess to be followers of his. And he describes to them a wedding. A wedding that would have been a common occurrence in the society of that day. So his description of this would have been very familiar to all the hearers. The wedding of that day, the bridegroom would leave his house, his family's house, and would leave with, with his uh, attendants. And there were some aspects of the celebration that they made their way there, but then eventually they would make their way to the bride's house. And there, at the bride's house, she would be waiting with her, what we would call today, bridesmaids. They're referred to here in our text as these women who are virgins. They're gathered with her, waiting, becoming the bridegroom. The bridegroom would come, the bride and the bridesmaids and the others would go, and they would walk together, typically at night, making this procession back to the groom's home, 
where the ceremony would continue. Now, as a part of this procession, everyone in the procession would bring their own either lamp or torch. It was necessary, one, to see, but it also signified who's in the wedding party and who's not. For someone trying to kind of join in this procession, they didn't have a torch, they didn't have a lamp. Just to be clear, this is kind of a wedding crasher. They're trying to kind of making their way in, even though they're not a part of this wedding procession. So Jesus tells us that there are these bridesmaids, these ten virgins. He tells in verse 2 that five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamp or torch, but they did not bring additional oil. Those he the wise ones, they did bring with them extra oil. But all ten of them found themselves waiting, and the bridegroom was delayed. This too seems very culturally accurate, right? The vast majority of weddings I've ever been to do not start on time. People are late, people are coming away, some of the wedding parties late. I will say it's not always the bridegroom Later. They do start late. And so they find themselves here, they're waiting, and they're waiting. It's delayed. And we see the text that they fall asleep. That's natural. Who wouldn't fall asleep as the evening moves on? They're sitting there, but both the wise and the foolish fall asleep. So, so that's not being critiqued here. There's no condemnation for them falling asleep here. But then at midnight, Finally, the bridegroom arrives. The announcement is made. He's here. So everyone gets up. They begin to, to again, trim their lamps or their torches to apply the oil so they will burn. Because of the delay, it becomes clear that the foolish ones, because they did not, they did not bring extra oil, did not have sufficient oil for the profession, procession. The wise ones did have oil. So initially, the foolish ones asked the wise ones if they would loan them some. Would you give us some oil? But the wise ones explained that if we give you oil, it won't be enough for either one of us. So you should go and buy some more oil and then come back. So that's what the foolish ones did. They went and bought some more oil. But while they were away, the bridegroom arrived. All who were prepared got up and left and went with the bridegroom. They entered into the, the gathering. And the door was closed. Finally, the other five make their way there. But when they arrive, they're late. And they're told, I do not know you. Then we have this concluding statement. Down in verse 13, Jesus says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So we have this parable. And so we ask, what is the point? What is the point that Jesus is making for his disciples? What is the point that he's making for us today? And where we find the point is at the turning point of the story. It highlights the difference between these two groups, the wise and the foolish. And what is the turning point? It is the delay of the bridegroom. But those who were foolish and who did not bring extra oil would not have had an issue had the bridegroom been on time. They wouldn't have needed extra oil. They would have had sufficient. But because of the delay, because they had to wait turned out that they were unprepared. They weren't prepared for the long wait. So Jesus concludes then by this watch because you don't know when. And last week the sense of watching was watch because Jesus may return soon. 
Watch because Jesus is near. And that is true. And then today, the sense doesn't contradict that, but gives us a, a fuller picture. That we must watch diligently because Jesus could return at any time. And then Jesus is saying in this parable, we also must be prepared to watch with perseverance. Because it could still be a long time before he returns. And both are true. Watch. Jesus could return very, very soon. Watch. It may be beyond our lifetime. The wise in the parable are those who are prepared for a long wait. And friends, an essential element for the Christian is perseverance, endurance, waiting with perseverance. Now we see in the parable this sobering ending when the five foolish virgins are turned away. And Jesus intends this for a warning to those who think of themselves as disciples of Jesus, who profess to be a follower of his, but who do not persevere in watching, who don't persevere in our waiting. So this parable is not a, a, a picture of rejection of someone who has diligently sought to follow Jesus, but it is one who outwardly has said, I'm a follower of Jesus, but they, they quit watching. They haven't stayed the course. They've given up in the watching, and by so doing, they've shown they're not truly one of God's people. There's one test. The validity of a profession of faith in Jesus is if the person perseveres in Faith. It's one thing to say, I believe in Jesus, I trust in Jesus for a week, or a month, or a year. But it's another thing to persevere for years, for decades, for a lifetime. I want to be careful and clear about this. Perseverance does not earn salvation. So it's not that if I persevere long enough, finally then God will save me because I've been so faithful in my perseverance. That's not what the Bible teaches us. But there is the reality that this perseverance gives evidence of the authenticity of salvation. Shows that truly salvation has taken hold. For across the scriptures, it's clear salvation is a gift of God. A gift of grace held out to any and all who receive it, they can only receive as a gift. It is not earned. It must not be earned. We must not try to earn it uh, at the beginning or on the backside of it. But if a person has truly placed their faith in Jesus alone for salvation, and if they are a new creation, then one of the many results of this will be across months, years, and decades, Perseverance in faith it shows that the salvation that they profess that they possess truly has taken hold of them. Of course, the challenge is that perseverance, endurance are not easy. In fact, I don't even think they're that desirable for most of us. Most of us don't spend a lot of time praying. I just pray you would make me more enduring. 
when I was in elementary school, you know, PE, we would have the you know, kind of school, at least it was kind of forced upon us, the school track meet. So you had to run something in this inter-school track meet. And so I began to describe the different events in the running things, and, and I'm listening very closely, and they describe them, and I think, you know what I want to do? I want to do the 100-yard sprint. But why? It's because they describe these other runs as these endurance runs. A mile. And I was thinking to myself, like, well, even if I really lose bad in the 100-yard dash, which I did, at least it's over with quick. And who thinks, yeah, I'd like to run a mile? Or more than mine. So many people do that. You love to run these very long distances, but, but who says, I want to be an endurance runner? Like, let's just get the pain of one quick. Sprint, I lose, and I'm finished. In so many areas of our life, we don't desire perseverance. And Jesus calls us to persevere, wait, stay the course. And our sinful impatience under, undermines our willingness to persevere. Perseverance also isn't easy because it means we will persevere through many difficulties. Right in chapter 24, we saw Jesus describing some of those difficulties. Listen to 24, beginning verse 9. Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will go grow, grow cold. Verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So it's a daunting picture of life in this world. Then and now. Many difficulties, much suffering, opposition. It will take endurance. But the one who endures will and the importance of this ongoing perseverance points to the reality that a person cannot, must not think we can live on past actions. Sometimes we may meet someone and they say, this is a Christian. As you have a bit of conversation, they say, yeah, but, you know, 25 years ago, I became a Christian. But as they talk, they basically describe it as something that happened then, but really they've had no engagement with since. I became a Christian 25 years ago, not actively part of any kind of church gathering. But that is what has secured my salvation now and for the future, that moment in the past. Just last week I was in an Uber and I was talking to the driver. He was describing you know, what he's excited for for that Sunday. And he was telling me that his son was going to participate in a, a, a ceremony at his church whereby uh, the son would be described as truly in the faith at this point. And the dad said, I'm so excited for that. Because that means we don't have to go to church anymore. He's like, what? <laughs> but that's what his view was. With this crossing of a threshold, me and my son were good for the rest of our lives. And there's nothing else that needed to be done. And he asked what I did. He said, oh, pastor, that's an interesting <laughs> conversation. It was an enjoyable conversation. Friends, we should have no assurance to think that we will have a true salvation based on something that only happened in the past. That has no ongoing relevance for day-to-day 
life. This parable also teaches us that although we must persevere together, it also must be done personally. Because notice there, there was no ability of one to share oil with another. Because another person's perseverance in faith cannot be applied to you. Perhaps you have parents who love Jesus. And they love you. And you've seen them follow Jesus and persevere. And even though they love you deeply, they can't give you part of their perseverance. Or do you have a spouse who loves Jesus and loves you? No matter how much they love you, they can't give you their perseverance. It must be done personally, individually. We turn to Christ by faith, individually, and we seem to follow. So it must be received, experienced personal, personally, but also if we are to persevere, we must not try to persevere alone. It is a Western, modern idea. The Christians can go it alone and go in a healthy way. So many in our country in particular have this idea that, that I can know and follow Jesus apart from other Christians. So, so I might access some services online. I might listen to uh, great singing and sing along with it even. I might even visit churches here and there in person. But I can know and follow Jesus in a faithful way, alone, apart from anyone else. Even some would think I can do it better by myself because I'm not kind of held back by others. But friends, as the years have gone by, I've known many who have tried this. There are enough cases where I've seen and I've never seen a person who over time trying to go to has ended up in a healthier place by choosing that path. What I've seen with great sadness over and over is that path doesn't lead closer to Jesus, but further and further and further away. Which is like someone who wants to climb a mountain. Someone wants to climb Mount Everest and says, I'm going to climb it alone. Of course you could not. You would not try that. And so it is for Christians. God has ordained and we walk together in Christ. So, friend, could it be that you've been trying to go alone in recent months or years? Or perhaps you attend services like this, and we're glad that you do. But the honest truth is, you're, you're not relying on or walking with in close community any other believers. And I pray you see it's dangerous. It's impossible. You're trying to do the impossible. So then we should consider if Jesus is calling us to watch with perseverance, who do you have who will help you persevere? Who do you have that's alongside of you trying to persevere in the same direction? So there are days when you don't feel like you have the strength, they say, let's keep going. And also so that you can do the same to them. Proximity together, there are many things we seek to 
three, but one of those is to, is to watch together the return of Christ, to, to wait together with perseverance. It's very you're not a member of a local church. I just encourage you to consider, why not? Why, why not join a church? And say to other people, would you help me persevere? I'm afraid you are a member. There are many ways we can serve one another, but what I want to come into, at the very least, let's pray for one another. And pray, if you think, what should I pray for them? There are countless things we could pray for another believer, but pray for perseverance. Take the membership directory, pray for a few people, and say, I want to pray that God would help them persevere in faith this week. Consider how you might encourage them in that. And by the time this gospel is written down a few years after Jesus' teaching, some time had passed after Jesus said, I'm going to return soon. You can imagine some of those who were reading this gospel, the first readers who would have thought, well, he said he's coming soon. They become kind of complacent. But others who said, well, Jesus said he's coming soon, so that's becoming very, very soon, and they were really just not interested in perseverance. So we see the beautiful wisdom of Jesus. Chapter 24 and 25. He equips us. He tells us, he's coming soon. And there's time to wait. So be prepared persevere, to watch, and to wait. Ready for Christ's return any day. Also aware that we may have to persevere to the very end of our lives. Raises the question, though, what are we supposed to do while we wait? That brings us to the second, work faithfully. Which work faithfully, that's what the second parable helps us with. Tells a wealthy man who calls his servants to them and he entrusts some of his property to them while he's going to go away on a lengthy journey. He gives to them something called a talent. Now, a talent here is referring to a monetary unit of that day. It's easily confused because we use talent in a very different way. So he's not using talent the way that we would to give a, a skill or a capacity that we have. He's talking about a unit of money. I don't know exactly what a talent was worth in that day, but we do know it was a substantial sum. And so the man gives to one, five talents. To another, two talents. To another, one. He doesn't give the same to all, and we're told he gives each according to their ability. The one with five takes it, he goes to work with it, and he makes five more. The one who had two went to work with it, he makes two more. The one who had one, we're told, dug a hole. Put the money in the hole. And after a long time, the man returns to settle the accounts, and, and the man with five brought the five that he made. Tonight he returns 10. Now look at the response, verse 21. The master says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little, I've set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But when two brought his two more back, so he comes back with four. It's notable that he receives the exact same affirmation. Though he didn't bring five back, he did bring two back. Also, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I will send you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had one talent, in verse 24, the man said, Master, I knew you you to be a hard man, reaping what you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seeds, so I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. That's exactly the way to win friends and influence people, right? It doesn't start things well. 
this conversation. The master answers, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reaped where I did not sow, gather where I scattered no seed. Well, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And in my coming, I should have received what was my own interest. So take the talent from you and give it to him. We're going to have the talents. The master doesn't seek to debate about these words, but he uses his own words against it. Like, well, at the very least, if that was true, I'm not saying it was, but if it was true, you should have at least put it in the bank. Jesus then summarizes verse 29. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The context continues to be Jesus instructing his disciples in private about how they're to live in light of his return. Jesus is not talking about what, whether you should invest your money in the bank or not. That's not what he's talking about. But he's saying to us, we are to watch, and while we watch, we're to work faithfully. The talents here represent broadly all that God has given to us. Our time, our energy, our skills, our resources, our gifts, the very length of our entire lives. And just as the master gave different amounts to the servants, not all of us have the same resources. Not all of us have the same length of days. Not all of us have the same energy. He's given to each one of us differently, but he has given to each one of us. He has given to you. He has given to me. So the point is not what someone else has that you don't have, or what you have that they don't. The question is, am I working faithfully? With all that God has given to me for all the days that I have until Christ returns or until I die. So are you working faithfully with all that God has given to you for all the days that you have until Christ returns or until you die? Friends, as citizens of the kingdom of Jesus, there is kingdom work to be done. Loving God. Loving neighbor. Telling the good news, serving one another, helping one another persevere, caring for the least. Friends, we're to work and keep working. But the picture is not a sort of frantic, frazzle working. But make no mistake, it is intentional, significant work. In this life, the people of God will often be even busy when we're engaged in the good work of the kingdom of Jesus. So many times in my life I've thought, you know, just around the next corner, life will be easier. Just around the next season, I won't be so tired. I've given up. In fact, I don't think that happens in this life. We persevere, we endure, and we work, and we're often tired. Engaged 
and much kingdom work. Now kids, there's significant kingdom work for you guys as well. Well, and think about your friends who don't know Jesus. Pray for them. Tell them of Jesus. And a part of the kingdom work for you is actually at your home. As your parents say to you, there's work to be done at home. Wonderful things like the dishes. It's awesome, isn't it? Folding clothes. How about the mow the grass? Friends, for, as a kid, there's good and God-glorifying way for us to serve our parents, respect and honor them. And when we're doing that, you're doing good kingdom work. Friends, for all of us, the work continues until the last day when Christ returns or when we die. So we won't reach a point in life where we'll get to say, I've done a lot of kingdom work. It's time to slow down. Now, if you could retire from a job, it's great to do that. I see nowhere in the scriptures that commends to us retirement from kingdom work. Well, we may slow down a bit. I hope when I'm older, I don't have to shovel snow. But friends, there's work for all of us to do until the very end. And though we may not have the energy in those days, by God's grace, we have more wisdom, we hope. Resources to share. So for don't look for a day where you can step off but to say, how might that free me up to do work differently? Still faithful work to the very last day. And then our parable, we do see a sobering, decisive act of separation, just as we saw in the first And again, Jesus is not addressing, addressing here outsiders, but those who appear to be insiders, who profess to be Disciples, but they evidently are tempted to choose not to join in the kingdom. Like we saw earlier, this faithful work is not earning salvation, but it's evidence of the reality of salvation. We can never work to earn our way in, but if I've truly been saved, it, it will result, it should overflow in my outward work for the kingdom. Friends, we can work this way. Because of our Savior and King Jesus, who worked faithfully, perfectly, as he walked the earth. And because, most importantly, Jesus in his work did something unique that no one has ever done and no one will do again. After 20, 25 to 28, we saw this a few weeks ago. So Jesus called them to him, to his disciples, and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever be great among you must be your servant. Whoever be first among you must be your slave. For even the Son of Man, referring to himself, came not to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus showed us in his life service, kingdom work. But then Jesus, the perfect Son of God, Served in a way that no one ever has. He, the sinless Son of God, went to the cross. That through his sacrificial death in the place of sinners, he would pay for our sin, for our rebellion, for all of us who have gone our own way. We've all rejected God. We have no way to make up for that. But Jesus came to die in our place, taking our sin, 
can bear and raise on the third day to secure this glorious gift of salvation, reconciliation with God, the forgiveness of sin, new life in Him, life eternal, and life filled with fruitful kingdom work here and now. If you're not a Christian, we're so glad you would join us today. We would so much want you to know this unique King who came to serve us out of His great love to sacrifice in very self, His very self in our place. So this is new to you, we'd love to tell you more. For those who are Christians, we've experienced this salvation, and now the very Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, is in us, empowering us for the work, sustaining us. He will give us strength, satisfaction, joy as we serve. And notice, friends, that the reward for good work is more work. So the parable is that the one who's done well, I can eat more. So, so in this life, it makes sense often. But when you are faithful, you're given more opportunities, more responsibilities. Not to crush us, but to say, here's a faithful. And they put more in their hands. So friend, are you engaged in diligent working for the kingdom? There are many ways for us to do this. Praying for others, praying for your church. Praying for the advance of the gospel. Serving the life of church. So many of you host community groups. You open up your home at great cost to yourself. Or you lead community groups. Or so many of you serve some days down in children's ministry. To love children and point them to Jesus. Or you serve in things like welcoming people. Or, or caring for those who struggle with homelessness in the drop-in ministry. Serving the band. There's so many ways that I see you faithfully, patiently. Eager serve. There's also good work to be done beyond the life of church. There's faithful organizations in, in the city. Good work to be done. Or maybe if you're new to Hope and you'd like to serve, you're not sure where to start. I'd love for you to speak with one of the staff or the elders. We'd love to help you find a place. It's also worth considering, is it possible that you once served faithfully and diligently? It's been a while. Maybe it is that you've recently moved to Boston to part from being in the church. You just haven't found a place to serve. Maybe you, you finished school, you moved into a job, but that changed the rhythm of life, and you haven't been able to kind of resume habits. Maybe you used to serve a lot before you were married, but now you're married, and that obviously complicates some things in a good way, but it has changed things, so you've not found a rhythm for that. Or, or, or now you have children. Obviously, that changed things as well. Friends, there are ways for each of us to engage and serve. Also, I think COVID impacted us as well. So we, we spent so much time disconnected from that. So we kind of lost some of that muscle. So we can just think through, how do I pick up and resume again? Let me urge you, for your own good, for your own joy, to begin to serve again. Friends, as we work faithfully, we look forward to what we can hear on the last day. The words we see in the, in the parable that, that sort of go beyond the parable itself. These words. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter in the joy of your master. That's a future hope for us. We die or with God or when he returns. We said to you, friend, well done, 
you've been faithful, enter into the joy of your master. Friends, what wonderful words. Friends, I see in you so often, so many of you, this faithful word. Someday you'll hear those words for God and the King. Friends, God is glorified in our work. So as we work now, there is joy to be experienced now in our working and promised eternal joy in the future. For Jesus has promised to return. It may be very soon. It may be after our lifetime. But until then, let's be persevering and faithful 